with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the Friday panel with some hot topics coming up around the bottom of the hour. But first off, here is uh, yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. This is from a video of a pillar of smoke screaming into the sky in Beirut, Lebanon. It's already a terrifying sight, with over a million people within just a few miles of this port. But then it gets much worse. A cloud of crimson and fiery orange explodes out of the smoke. In an instant, Beirut's waterfront neighborhood, normally teeming with restaurants and bars, pretty much disappears. And the girl in this video screams, I don't want to die. Officials say over 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate caused Tuesday's explosion. The port held it for six years after its removal from a cargo ship, despite warnings. And now at least 135 people are dead, around 5,000 injured, and some 300,000 have been forced out of their homes. Today I'm talking with Hanna Anbar of Lebanon's Daily Star newspaper. He'll tell us what it's like to be in Lebanon right now and help us understand the complexities of this tragedy. I'm Josh Bach. This is Frontburner. Mr. Anbar, how are you doing today? My, my day started by going back to look at our offices because our offices were destroyed. My office was destroyed. On top of me, I don't know how I survived. And it's a glass room because I overlook the, the newsroom, which is a, you know, an open space. But mine was gl- totally glass and that was totally shattered and uh, false ceiling fall, fell on top of me and I survived without any scratch. Although our offices were destroyed, but it is at least nobody was hurt. And this is a blessing when we look at the buildings next to us that were, you know, totally destroyed or half of them destroyed and they have casualties in hospitals. Hmm. And that is that is the tragedy of things. Other angles show the blast wave crumbling buildings like sandcastles. Traveling faster than the speed of sound, people couldn't get out of the way of the blast. You know, we saw the horrible uh, images and the videos of the explosion in Beirut's port. And we could hear the, the, the terror and the panic in people's voices. Uh, within seconds, uh, it felt like an earthquake. The whole building shook. And then the blast uh, happened. My body was thrown uh, and I felt breathless. Uh, it really felt like uh, nothing I've ever experienced before, to the point where uh, you basically felt uh, almost like death. It was just horrible. Can you tell me more about what did you hear and see when that blast happened? Everybody was shocked because it's been a very long time that we have had 
uh, explosions, but never as strong as this explosion. It was really, really something very strong. Everything, everything in the neighborhood closer to the port is basically flattened. You saw, you know, buildings that just basically didn't exist anymore. And the highway leading uh, from the north towards the, the capital was basically a blanket of shattered glass uh, and rubble. Uh, tractors were trying to clear the rubble so that the cars could go by and the ambulances were trying to rush to the scene through very, very heavy traffic. Um, so when you walk around the streets today, can you tell me what did you see? Well, today was a day of reckoning. People were just still in awe. They are very thankful that they're still alive. I see people cursing the government. I saw people complaining, not knowing what to do. I saw people who look, you know, just in, you know, with, with, with this gaze of, like you only see in the cinema, like this is the end of the world. In some areas, in, in, in the downtown luxury areas, all you see is shattered windows. You see their furniture is on, on, on the side of the road. And the owners or the people who work there are just standing and just they look like it's you know the day after the end of the world and you can understand because these people mm. will not have a job tomorrow but at the same time there were you know the the area that was struck is a very small community and everybody has a friend or has a relative so people really most of the time were on the phone or going to hospitals or checking on their friends or their relatives. He's 29 years old. From 7 o'clock in the evening, we've been all over every hospital in Beirut and we are now waiting for the names to come out and nothing has come out. We don't know if he's dead or alive. We just don't know. So it was that kind of day. It was a, a sad day. People were busy with the human side of life. I've seen these pictures of just entire neighborhoods in Beirut that are completely flattened. The force of the explosion was so great it flipped cars onto their sides and could reportedly be felt as far away as Cyprus, some 250 kilometers away. And I know a lot well, of people have lost their homes. Some 300,000 people now that's are, right. are out of their homes. Tell me, are, where can they go? What are you hearing about what people are doing right now? Well, there are, there are hot, hotels in the suburbs have opened their doors for them. Convents have opened all the convents for them. Lots of people go to relatives or friends. And the Ministry of Education has made every school available for people who want to go and stay there until they find something. So it is very sad, but people will not, we will, ha will have shelter. People in Lebanon, let me just make this statement very clear, under duress, become so friendly, become very warm, and they treat each other as, as a family, regardless of who you are and what you are and for where you are. Uh, people are uh, uh, helping others uh, 
taking people, you know, from, from rubbles, you know, helping people. Also distributing water and um, essentials that, uh, you know, uh, people need. And, and I have seen reports about the remarkable ways that, that residents of Beirut have also, in this difficult time, really been reaching out to one another. This is a trait of this nation. In times of trouble, in times where your neighbor is in real trouble or his house is destroyed or one of his family is dead, everybody around him, and they are not necessarily relatives, will make things as easy as possible for them. People go and cook for them. People go and stay with them and talk to them. They can offer them a room in their house. This has really is not a new thing in this country. That has happened in the war before, in the civil war. It has happened today again in the streets that I walked in. I saw people doing that. People hugging each other, people asking each other questions, people who don't know each other. And this human side is very touching. I also know that there's about 5,000 people who have been injured, and many of them quite severely. I know Lebanon's hospitals are already grappling with coronavirus. Beirut's hospitals were overwhelmed by casualties in need of urgent treatments. Every one of our crew, doctors and nurses are operating. Even administration, everyone is working. Can you tell me a little bit about the scene right now at Beirut's emergency rooms? I think, I think of course, as you know, the hospitals were overcrowded with corona cases, but uh, the, the emergency uh, sections of all hospitals all over Lebanon have really opened up to the wounded. And in some hospitals, you know, they were so overcrowded, there were no more space. Some are turning patients away, others treating them in parking lots. But two or three of the hospitals have been also affected by the explosion because they are near the port. Right. I saw, I saw that the New York Times was reporting it might, in fact, be as many as four hospitals that were too damaged to take new patients. Because we're hearing about multiple hospitals that are completely out of commission because of the destruction. Roughly half of the country uh, lives below the poverty line. Um, people can't afford to go to private hospitals. Uh, now you have hospitals that have been, you know, destroyed. Well, some of them were moved to other hospitals. But I think under the circumstances, the, the medical teams have done a wonderful job on top of like, for example, during the past 48 hours, we have more than 350 cases of corona on top of all that. Huh. That's the first part of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM. We have segment number two coming up in a moment here on After Nine. You're listening to After Nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. And now segment two of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Before we go any further with Hannah, I want to give you an update about what we know about the explosion. Like I mentioned earlier, officials are linking the blast to over 2,000 tons of ammonium nitrate 
stored in a warehouse in Beirut's port. The Lebanese prime minister said it was a horrific chemical explosion, suggesting an act of negligence, not terrorism or malice. That 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, commonly used in fertilizer, was stored at the port without proper precautions. The chemical is highly explosive, and that's got a lot of people asking pretty much the same question. You know, why was vast amounts, close to 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate, stored in downtown Beirut? It was a, you know, tragedy waiting to happen, and, you know, the people responsible for making that decision or, or not solving this problem a lot earlier are precisely the Lebanese um, ruling class that um, um, are going to face demands for accountability uh, from the citizens of Lebanon very soon. Part of the answer has to do with a Russian-owned cargo ship that arrived at the port in 2013. Financial and technical problems stranded the ship, and port authorities took the ammonium nitrate ashore. It then sat in that warehouse for six years. Even the prime minister was outraged. Those responsible will pay the price for what happened. This is a promise to the martyrs and to the wounded. This is a national commitment. The facts will be revealed about this dangerous warehouse that has been there since 2014. It's not like authorities didn't know about the chemicals. Public records show that customs officials sent letters at least six times over the years. They asked the courts for guidance on how to dispose of the ammonium nitrate and warned about how dangerous it was. Investigators are now looking into negligence and the government is ordering house arrest for some port officials. Beirut's port is notorious for corruption. But Lebanon's economy minister told CBC that's not what caused this. We have a lot of corruption, but in this case, it's not corruption that played a role. It is certainly uh, incompetence. It is certainly, as well, people not understanding and assessing uh, the risks. It is bureaucracy and, uh, frankly, in my opinion, stupid uh, behaviors and decisions. There's still a lot of questions about what happened. And so I asked Hannah Anbar about how people in Beirut are reacting to the revelation so far. People in Beirut at the moment really are in the process of survival. They're very angry, of course. You have to take into consideration because there's the devaluation of our currency. We get now, compared to the dollar, 10% of what we got last month or the month before. Mm -hmm. So people are getting 10%. And that 10% is gone because the prices on the other side have gone up because of the dollar. So between that and the loss on the devaluation, you really end up with paper money that has no value whatsoever. So people have, you know, when, when you have survival, you know, we don't have electricity, we don't have water, we have to, to buy water. You leave a small margin for real protests. This government was, was installed by other parties, and there was a revolution in South Hope, and that was that was really, you know, uh, shattered, and um, it really affected our psyche. It really affected our hearts, and we really picked ourselves up. And then you have the pandemic. There's this sense of loss, this sense of grief, this sense of helplessness. Well, I saw that say that say the children warned last month that almost a million people in Beirut are struggling to buy essentials, including food. 
what do you think the explosion does, you know, to Lebanese people's ability to just try and get the basic needs at this point? It's going near impossible. So, you know, until further notice, we are going to rely on foreign aid, wherever it comes from. Mm. Because the, the other ports in Lebanon are not equipped to take on all, or for example, they don't have granaries, they don't have the uh, wheat silos. The, the, our, our port took thousands of containers every month. Our medicine, our food, I mean, we import everything, we have nothing. So if that is now upset and there's a shortage of that, it is going to affect prices, of course. The, the living standards have already been smashed, but it's going to affect us more. We, have, we need to see how much this is going to affect our food. Our, we, we are not now, at the moment, we are not aiming for anything except to get survive and food for us and for our children. Of course, the, you know, another major challenge is... is rebuilding the incredible amount of damage that has been done to the infrastructure in Beirut. And I know that that has already been a challenge to try and rebuild the city from the from the civil war. How difficult will it be to try and rebuild Beirut from this unprecedented destruction? Near impossible. By Beirut, it is very difficult to have another Beirut. Not, not, not in the next 10 years, the way I see it. And that is a great loss. I mean, the attraction of Beirut will go. We have nothing else to offer our tourists except a good nightlife, a good life, good hotels, good restaurants, you know, people who love life. Why would somebody in Kuwait or in Dubai come and spend money here? In the coming days, you know, as people start to put glass back onto their windows and to find homes, to find food again, that some of these bigger questions will start to be tackled. Where will you be directing your attention in the coming days? Let me just go just say this. What you have today is, is a survival mood. A survival mood. We are not thinking what is going, not me and other people are not thinking of what is happening next week. What they want, let me have shelter this week and let me think about what is going to happen later. Otherwise, they will go crazy. They have to go day by day. It's very stressful and very frustrating. People can say that uh, Lebanese are resilient, but as a resilience is really wearing thin these days. Because it's just one thing after another. Yeah, I mean, there is no accountability in Lebanon. There's no transparency in Lebanon. Uh, there's no justice in Lebanon. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really not much of a state. We'll call it a failed state, but I don't really call it much of a state at all. I mean, it's kind of just like hanging on by a thread. We're just kind of living on luck. Um, and anything can go wrong at any time. If you ask me what is going to happen in one month, I will tell you there's going to be more frustration, more stress, and more skepticism against our government that i can promise you we are really reached the end i don't know how we're going to get out of this well hannah thank you so much for speaking with me today and and i do wish you all the best uh and, and do stay safe thank you very much
several countries have pledged aid in the aftermath of the blast in Beirut. The European Union is sending emergency workers and equipment from across its 27 countries. And Canada promised an initial contribution of $5 million, which will go to humanitarian groups like the Red Cross. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Front Burner. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that was yesterday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Back with the Friday panel and some hot topics in a moment here on After 9. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And good morning and welcome to the panel portion of After 9. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, and we have with us today our panelists, Eric Allen, Art Betke, Tracy Calageros, and Herb Martin, who is apparently out in the bush somewhere. So if he, if, if he drops off the line, you know what happened. So good morning, everyone. And uh, let's, uh, let's uh, jump right into it today. We got to get some, uh, we start off with some semi-breaking news. Um, yesterday, U.S. President Donald Trump announced uh, tariffs on Canadian aluminum, and uh, this morning, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Friedland announced that we will be retaliating. Eric, what's your take on uh, on yet another round of tariffs from the U.S.? Well, of course, being a in the midst of an election, we know we know why he's doing it, and uh, there is a Canada-Mexico-U.S. trade agreement that. I think we can, 70% of the aluminum in, in uh, that agreement is to be supplied by, you know, the people who signed the agreement. So he must be pushing it to as close as he can to the edge. But uh, and then we're going to get into tit for tat. I don't think it's a good idea to be doing that kind of thing, especially in this COVID uh, situation where there's 20 to 30 million people laid off in the U.S., and maybe not that many, but a huge amount. And, uh, you know, it's too bad. We're going to go tit for tat. I think over the long haul, we'd lose that one. Yeah. Art, uh, what's what's your take on this? It's kind of, there's, a, there's an irony in that President Trump uh, uh announced this at a factory that makes uh, dishwashers and washing machines which of course use Canadian aluminum. Um what's what's your take on the on the tariffs and and what can Canada do about it? Yeah, I, I don't really know why he uh imposed them. I he said there's been a big surge of imports of Canadian aluminum. I don't know that uh, American domestic producers have uh, been unable to compete for some reason, which would be the only logical reason to uh, do it. Uh, I suspect, you know, that it's, uh, you know, he, he's in trouble uh, with the election. I suspect he's trying to, you know, get some kind of support for protecting American industry by, uh, you know, doing the tariffs. He did um, have a lot of success uh, up until COVID happened with uh, his economic uh, reforms and the tariffs, which I didn't think were all that great at that time. But uh, the effect on the, the American economy was really good. And uh, up until January, uh, he was pretty much uh, guaranteed re-election. But this COVID thing has knocked 
the life out of the economy, and that was the thing that was going to get him elected. So he's looking around for something to give him a boost, I figure. Um, I don't think it'll have enough effect. I don't think it'll really be noticed in the States. Uh, Tracy, uh, what's what's your feeling on this? And uh, and uh, do you think uh, Trump was cruising to re-election until COVID? I guess we could uh, we could go down that path too, if you want. <laughs> well, I, I don't think he was cruising to re-election. and I do think it would have been a harder fight, and he certainly hurt himself through this whole COVID. I don't even want to call it his leadership. How about the mess he's made down there? Um, the tariffs—they didn't really work all that great for him the first time around, and I think the Canadian government's approach to matching them dollar for dollar with very specific and targeted tariffs that would have an impact and change his mind is exactly where it went. And I, I, I'm with Christia Freeland. I'm really hopeful that by the time we get through the 30-day consultation that the Canadian government's about to start doing with industry, that the U.S. will have rethought this and that common sense will have prevailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Herb, do you think that uh, common sense will will prevail, and, or are we going to have to get into another trade war right after we signed a, uh, a free trade agreement with the U.S.? Yeah, I think uh, Trump is just politically motivated at this point, trying to shore up his, his base support for the election. But it's um, it's it's really kind of a sad spectacle. Uh, on the one hand, the Americans are calling for. Uh, allies to uh, unite behind the U.S. Uh, in fighting China, and at the same time, they're, uh, we're, we're suffering friendly fire from the Americans. So it doesn't really work on an international basis, uh, but, it, but Trump's strong suit never was uh, the international forum. It's always been the domestic politics. Mind you, given that, I mean, 10% tariff really does nothing to, to protect or, or help the American industry. It's just a very small tariff. Yeah, uh, Eric, uh, do you think that that this is uh, just more bluster from uh, from the U.S. president and feels he has to do something to to try to uh, bolster his standing in the polls? Well, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think they look into this very closely. I mean, Rio Tinto Alcan is actually owned by a big Australian conglomerate. I mean, it's not a Canadian company. It just has a plant. It has plants in Canada that produce aluminum. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, a lot of the ownership of that uh, company is owned by Americans. So you couldn't make the case that he's actually putting an embargo against American uh, company owners, his own his own people. So in this global uh, uh, situation that we live in today, I mean, who knows? You know, who owns what or why? It's just, uh, yeah, he's just shooting from the hip because uh, you know he's the last train to Gun Hill, I think. <laughs> Art, uh, Trump has, uh, has uh, accused Canadian producers of, of basically dumping aluminum into the U.S. market, and that's why he's done this. Uh, uh, do, you, do you think that's the, uh, that's the case? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't follow the aluminum markets enough, but uh, do you think we would be stupid enough to do that in this climate? Oh, absolutely not, no. Uh... The Americans always have this idea that anybody who uh, can outcompete them on anything uh, must be cheating because, you know, they're the best in the world at capitalism. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's poorly thought out, and I think it's just a, a desperate election ploy myself. Yeah, uh, 
Tracy, uh, you, we talked, Art said uh, election ploy. I, I think you would agree with that. Uh, and we can mark that that you agree, you and Art agree on something there? Yeah, Art and I agree on something. <laughs> I absolutely think that that is true. Because I do, I think it's absolutely about the election. It has nothing to do with protecting industry or helping individuals. I, you know, I'd be interested in exploring a little more what Herb was getting into there, the idea that a 10% tariff really is super small and does nothing. And this is the most protectionist government the U.S. has ever had, at least in my understanding. I don't know that that works in today's world. We're a global community. We're all interconnected, whether by a virus or by the Internet, or both. Um, I, I don't see where this does anything other than play a bunch of optics and it was another one of those off the cuff remarks that he decided to make because he thought for a moment it was going to help yeah um herb canada is going to retaliate do you, do you think that uh, um i guess that's the only thing we really can do but does it does it solve anything uh it's just it's just satisfying i guess for <laughs> for canadians <laughs> but it just makes the, the price of uh tennessee whiskey a little bit more and um yeah it hurts people in tennessee it's kind of a sad uh for that situation, but there we are. Especially because it's all targeted, particularly at the so-called Trump state. Like it's all about votes in his base areas. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that seems to be what uh, uh, what we do when we retaliate, which which is which is crazy because it's just it makes everything so political. Uh, well, and it's telling that that's the way we have to go. Yeah, exactly. Right on. Um, well, let's switch things up a bit now. I think we've uh, solved all the international trade wars in the world. <laughs> um, we've talked about masks before, uh, and uh, uh, they seem to be coming. It, it's coming more and more uh, a, a thing, I think, that you're going to have to wear masks to deal with uh, COVID-19. Um, BC Transit came out yesterday saying that as of, uh, I think it's August 24th, if you wanted to get on a bus or a train down in the down in the lower mainland, and, well, a bus up here or a train down in the lower mainland, you're going to need a mask. Uh, Walmart has said that uh, August 12th, you will need a mask to go into all Walmart stores. Uh, Eric, what's uh, what do you think on this? Uh, that you know we're going to need need masks. Uh, is this is this the, the right way to go? Well, you know, certainly when you get in a situation like. Uh, mass transit like in vancouver where people are you know you get into those buses and you're just all crammed in there and the same thing with i guess with those uh trains but uh so you don't want people breathing on each other and passing that that covid thing back and forth but um i don't know you know i mean you get one people group of people say that it's to protect you from other people and then but it's not really good to wear in the mask. It's just making sure you're not breathing on somebody else. So I think that that's the thing that's coming. But from a Walmart customer point of view, uh, I think the, the end result will be uh, uh, how it affects their sales. If they, if they start losing customers, they may uh, change their philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that and that happens. I mean, this whole thing, the, the issue behind... The issue is to get the economy back going. And so I think we're taking, you know, we're doing a certain amount of gambling there, hoping that uh, we'll get by on it and 
get the economy going. But, you know, you start gambling with kids and uh, schools and things like that. I think you're asking for some trouble. Yeah. Uh, Art, uh, how do you think about, uh, you know, more and more places making masks uh, mandatory? I, I think it's a bit late, you know. I mean, uh, wasn't it a lot worse way back in uh, April than now? And there wasn't any such requirement then. Um, it is true that uh, it, in mass transit, especially in places like Vancouver, as Eric said, or uh, other cities like the subways in New York, uh, when people are crammed in there cheek by jowl, um, you know, that's uh, actually contributes, uh, apparently it contributed considerably to the massive infection rate that New York had. And so it would certainly help in that situation, although I don't think it would help all that much. Here in Prince George, uh, we don't have that many people on those buses, and the bus rides themselves are not very long, so I don't know that would really make a difference. Um, and uh, it depends, too, on um, on how they wear the mask, what kind of mask they use, you know, uh, and uh, for how long they wear a mask. If you're wearing a mask all day, you know, in medical situations, they change them every hour, but when people are wearing them out and about, they don't. So, you know, they're, I, I don't think it'll be all that effective. Okay, uh, that brings us to our first break. Uh, we will be right, back, right, we'll be right back and unmask the mask issue some more. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And welcome back. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, on the this portion of After Nine. And we've been talking about masks and uh, uh, how necessary they are to fight COVID and becoming mandatory. And uh, we'll go to Tracy Calajeros, who, of course, is selling masks, so she's uh, kind of know where she's coming from. But, but a few comments on, on places that are making masks mandatory. Well, we're going to go down in history today because I'm about to agree with Art again. <laughs> I really think that it is too late or a little late. It's not too late. It is late. I wish they had mandated masks a long time ago. Given that they reduced the spread by between 90 and 95 percent when worn properly, I just don't see that there's any better weapon in our current arsenal to be able to fight COVID-19. And we're about to open schools. More and more evidence is mounting that children not only contract it, but spread it. And so if we have the opportunity to get people into masks now before those kids are back in school, I say we take it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, getting back to schools, Herb. It's it's interesting that we're seeing uh, masks become mandatory in in some places, and yet they're only suggested for public school, which will be going back uh, in September, possibly. Well, there's there's already cases out of the states where kids are, are you know a couple of days back into school and they're they're already sick. So that that um, that might change yet. I mean, this is a pretty fluid situation. Um, just going back to, you know, uh, wearing masks in Prince George, look, uh, Edmonton, Calgary have already mandated it where social distancing isn't possible. Uh, it wouldn't be a big step for Prince George City Council to adopt a similar resolution. Um, you know, as long as everyone else is doing it, why not start? I mean, it, it can't hurt. It can only help. And there might be actually big dividends to pay down the road. Um, First of all, uh, you know, the Northern Health is one of the lowest um, 
incidences of COVID uh, anywhere in North America, uh, that could pay uh, big dividends for, let's say, financial investments or, uh, you know, any all sorts of opportunities later on down the road when this eventually ends. Uh, and it also might instill some sort of sense of civic pride in Prince George and the, and the whole northern region as well, that if we can, we can avoid any... I mean, there's still a chance of a second wave coming. If we can avoid that, I mean, we're just going to be way ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Yeah, Eric, uh, the the premier came out yesterday and uh, and sort of chastised people uh, who are going to restaurants who are who are the, who are uh, being rude and belligerent to staff who uh, are are trying to enforce COVID rules, i.e. social distancing and wearing masks. Uh, um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, you know, that's where we got the old expression going postal from. Is the, you know, somebody gets upset and they go to the post office and the clerk behind the deal is the one that gets the blast. And, you know, there are some instances where they're actually shot. Those aren't the people that are responsible for anything. They're just the frontline people. But the government is on an island in Victoria or something, and a lot of these representatives are conspicuous by their absence. So you don't have a target to express how you feel about these things. We don't have, uh, you know, we really don't have a good line to our MLAs. And uh, so people get frustrated, and they take it out on the, the person behind the uh, the counter at the cash register. I, I think that's totally uh, unacceptable behavior. Like, you would never do that to your family, and yet you think you can go out and do it out in public to anybody and start blowing your top off. Totally unacceptable, and people should take the time to think about, you know, do they really think that the person that they're talking to has anything to do with the situation? Of course they don't. Hey, Eric, do you think it would make a difference if it was mandatory across the province? Like, would it cut down on some of that at front desks and hills? Mandatory? What was Mandatory? Well, if the masks were mandatory in indoor spaces outside of your home, like wouldn't that protect some of those frontline workers? That's the way I see it. Well, you can, but the the problem with uh, you know a lot of people are concerned about you know if you you have me wearing masks. I mean, we're already chained to our cars, and you know I got two hundred thirty-two thousand rules and regulations to cover getting into a vehicle. So people are getting kind of tired of having rules for everything, but this one's serious. But the thing is. We were told over and over and over again that the way this thing is spread is through your eyes, through your nose, and through your mouth. So now we're going to have people breathing on each other, thinking that, you know, uh, the mask is stopping everything. But the thing is, if it gets on you, you're always taking that mask on and off, and you're touching your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. So I don't know if it's going to work or not, really. And the sure as hell shouldn't be using the schools as a, t- a testing lab. Art, uh, what are your what are your, th- what are your thoughts on uh, on using the schools as a testing lab? Uh, should we be, be opening them up uh, uh, completely? I guess that's that's sort of the plan: is to open them up completely and uh, and and see what happens. Yeah, um, I think we should open them. Um, just how I'm not sure. Kids getting kids in elementary school to wear masks—it'd be like Eric said. They'd be touching. They'd be taking them off. They'd be, it's very difficult to get them to observe proper 
protocol that would actually work to prevent the, the contacts. Um, but, you know, in Europe, I've heard that they have successfully, uh, 20 countries, more than 20 countries, have successfully reopened schools with no problem. Now, I don't know what they did there, if they did distancing, if they did masks. I have no idea. I just heard that they've done that. So I would hope that our government is uh, checking with countries like that who have had success in that matter. Uh, and so I think, you know, it, it, it needs to be done. I, kids themselves are not all that vulnerable to it. Um, uh, they are much more vulnerable to just the ordinary everyday flu that we get every year. That kills far more uh, kids than this COVID virus does. So um, I, I don't think it's a real big danger for them. Um, but as for general mask wearing for the rest of the populace up here, because we have been so lucky, we, because we've been spared a lot of infection up here, we're still vulnerable. We haven't developed any mass immunity up here. So, yeah, we got to be careful. But uh, mandatory mass indoor places, not your home, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not in favor of that, sorry. Well, I knew we couldn't agree forever, Art. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got about one minute rebuttal there, Tracy, and then we got to go for a break. <laughs> Just that I do think that um, the science is evolving constantly, the... the views now on how kids contract it, whether or not they spread it. I mean, the fact that, for the most part, when we locked down, schools were closed and kids stayed home. So we don't really have a lot of data to go on. But the data that's coming out now, particularly out of Georgia, where they're showing large super-spreading events with teenagers and young kids, the only other piece I'd add is that I spoke yesterday to William, who runs the Science Center in Houston. He's the Nassau-based one. His comment was really telling. He said that they were most concerned about keeping masks on kids, and they found that kids five and up, no problem. It's the adults they're having the problems with. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay, we will take a short break and be right back. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And I'm your host, Bill Phillips, and welcome back. Uh, we've been talking uh, COVID-19 and masks, and uh, we'll go to uh, to Herb, uh, um, with schools going back in, uh, I, I think one of the the things they talked about with masks uh, with kids is that ten and up, uh, because they re they they recommend uh, uh, age ten and up for masks, because that's the age where they sort of act or with the with the disease more like adults. Um, what what do you think about uh, um, you know going back to school uh, this fall and 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 making masks? Uh, I guess it's it's not quite mandatory, or should it be mandatory for kids at school? Well, uh, we're we're kind of lucky in that our uh, school year doesn't start till September, and the Americans are already going back. So we're going to know pretty soon what what uh, you know the fallout uh, of the different policies are. So in a way, we're we're yeah quite quite fortunate that we can uh, observe what happens elsewhere and uh, and modify uh, accordingly. I, I think. Uh, no one really has a, a, a firm sense of what might exactly be the best um, uh, procedure. So, uh, yeah, uh, watch and learn. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we we have a few minutes left. So let's uh, let's switch topics a bit. Uh, Eric, you brought up a, a, a thing uh, uh, before the show about uh, some conflicting reports about Canfor. 
Um, fill us in a little bit on, on what that was about and, and, and your thoughts on it. Well, you know, the article, uh, the original article that I read was from uh, Glacier News, uh, outlining, you know, all the problems with the forest industry and high cost and they can't compete. We were at that 30 percent uh, it costs a 30% higher than some of the other operations like in Sweden and southern U.S. or whatever. So, and then, but in another part of the newspaper, it, it said that uh, Canfor bounced back and they're in the black, and they attributed that to 3% drop in the Canadian dollar, uh, increase in the lumber prices, and, you know, uh, they were going to write down $47 million in log inventory they didn't have to do that so they were looking a lot better than they were and actually made a profit so that's all within a, a scan of or a span of seven days so you know what's going on here i mean we know that that can for and their and their high cost is a tool that they're using to get down the uh, cost of stumpage and horgan basically came back and told them well you know you don't own the trees, all you have is a tree farm license. You have a license to log the trees. The trees belong to the people of British Columbia. And part of that understanding and agreement is that you provide uh, jobs. And, of course, Canford didn't like that. Or at least the guy writing this article at Glacier Media indicated they didn't like that. So so it's kind of a, a mixed bag now. I mean... We have nobody in, in the news media or anybody that I'm aware of that can do a real analysis of the cost and substantiate anything that's said in either one of those columns. We don't spend the time and the effort to look into it and find out what the real situation is. I would suggest that if you set, shut down all your mills in the surrounding area and they're not supplying you with wood chips anymore and you're hauling logs from further away in that, of course your costs are going to go up. But it may have nothing to do with stumpage. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Can, can I jump in here, Phil? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, just, I mean, on the face of it, uh, it's a bald face live from Canfor. You know, the, the wood coming out of Mackenzie is bypassing the shuttered uh, Canfor mill in Mackenzie and, head, and heads down the road to Dunkley, who is, is uh, working full steam ahead. So, you know, how is it that Dunkley can make money and Canfor can't? It's, it's simply not true, I think. The, the reality is that Canfor is finding they can jack up the price of uh, southern yellow pine when they shutter these BC mills, and there's no competition. And I think that's that's, that's pretty much the, the story of the last uh, over the last six or seven months, really. As, as every time a, a BC mill gets shuttered, the price of lumber goes up, and Canfor benefits because it's an Amer- it's mostly an American. A corporation or a foreign corporation now. It's not a Canadian lumber company anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art, what's what's your take on that? Do you think this uh, uh, it's uh, Canfor uh, playing fast and loose with uh, with uh, reality? I guess, uh, or or is it uh, uh, is it the, maybe the media's fault? As as Eric was saying, we're not uh, paying enough attention to what these companies are actually doing. I don't think we have all the information. Um, it was said uh, when prices were down and Canfor was losing money that uh, Alberta mills were still in, in the black, while Canfor and BC, other BC mills were uh, losing money because of higher operating costs. And the other thing about Canfor is uh, 
like, you know, they're not just a BC company. So when they say Canfor is bounced into the black, do they mean Canfor as a whole or just the BC mills? I suspect it's Canfor as a whole, in which case that includes their Swedish and American mills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Tracy, uh, your your thoughts on this, uh, and, and just as a, as a side note, uh, uh price of two by sixes and two by fours uh, earlier this week were six hundred and twenty dollars which is extremely high so they should be making money yeah they should be making money and they don't own the forests in british columbia and i do think that we need to think about land use management holistically again whether we're talking about the spraying that they do in the bush or what the rules are around stumpage you know I, listening to you guys talking it, it made me think back to the late 90s when Kenfor bought northwood and there was a huge conversation in the community then about companies, corporate responsibilities, and corporate citizenship, and the role that these head offices had to play in the communities in which they were pulling the resources. And, you know, the fears that were expressed 20 years ago are exactly what I'm hearing in this conversation today coming to fruition, that the companies obviously look holistically at their organization for a, a good single bottom line, and when they're owned outside of British Columbia or even outside of Canada, the focus is not going to be on what's best in the local community, and then the local citizens lose access to and the benefits from the natural resources that we rightly should have access to. Absolutely. And that brings us to the end of our time. Um, I'm... This has been Bill Phillips uh, hosting the panel portion of After 9. And just before we go, uh, tune in tonight uh, to, to cheer on the Canucks. Not on the radio, of course, I don't, unless we're on the radio. But uh, go Canucks, go. But uh, uh, tune in next week for another portion of After 9.